Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in one of my favourite villages in the whole of Cumbria, Ascombe, with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Well, it's wonderful to be in this village and in your company and in a village that I've always loved. I remember seeing a drawing of Wainwrights of this green and thinking, hey, this is somewhere in the Cotswolds or some gorgeous bit of the countryside that doesn't seem to fit with Cumbria somehow. Yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? I think the first time I came here, I had a similar feeling. It feels like it's been transplanted from somewhere else in England. Every house is a joy to look at. You can just spend hours wandering really from door to door, (laughs) peering in at people's front doors and uh, probably getting asked to leave. But we're here today to talk about architecture and this concept of the vernacular, Mark. We have magically got in our company Alexandra Fairclough, who is the Historic Buildings Officer for Cheshire, who has a great passion for uh, vernacular architecture. And like myself, has been inspired by Professor Ron Brunskill. You should probably say a few words. I'm not really aware of Ron Brunskill, but he's a big deal, isn't he, if you love Lakeland architecture? Indeed. Uh, died only in 2015. Throughout his life, I understand, he developed a great insight into the importance and value of understanding architecture in all its ranges, but particularly the humbler architecture throughout the country. And Cumbria became a great passion of his. Alexandra uh, had the very good fortune to be given tutoring and encouragement by the very man himself. And I think today, Mark, we're not going to wander far, are we? There's no need to. There's so much to see. And we're going to learn a little bit about why vernacular architecture matters, what we can learn by looking at the uh, exterior of houses, some of the features you get, and what that can tell us about the building methods through the years. We will make an effort to wander up the valley, the street in the midst with the green, and get a sense of all the diversity in the buildings, which are absolutely fascinating. Fabulous. Well, I can see Alexandra. She's just there, down by the river, actually. So we'll start down there, and then we'll make our way steadily uphill. We found ourselves by the River Lalva, which is reflecting the woodlands to the east of us on a crisp late afternoon with a glorious blue sky. Out of sight to the east of us is Lowther Castle, but all attention is on the river itself. Actually, the name Lowther means the foaming water, but it's not foaming today. It's trickling very serenely. And I'm in the company of Alexandra Fairclough, Alexandra, it's glorious to see you in this setting. Lovely to see you, Mark. I'm Alexandra. I'm a historic building specialist and I absolutely adore 
this estate, this is the Lowther estate, because the variety of the buildings. I'm very passionate about vernacular architecture and it's some 25 years ago since I've been here in terms of studying the buildings when I came with my tutor Ron Brunskill, Professor Ron Brunskill. Professor Brunskill was a tutor um, from Manchester University. I did my master's there with him. And he had started the study of vernacular architecture, especially in Cumbria as a lad. His family is from Cumbria and he grew up around the farms of the Eden Valley. So he had studied these buildings and he went on to become an architect. And then from there, he studied more in terms of the historic humble dwelling, the smaller dwelling. Before that time, there really was a lot of emphasis on grand houses, cathedrals, churches, but not on the humble home. The houses and homes of you and me, basically. Indeed. I have an understanding that vernacular refers to a place, materials of a place. Can you give us the actual definition? I always define vernacular architecture as buildings uh, or structures built by locals using local material and using a local building tradition. I've heard it said by Norman Foster, who's the architect who also studied at Manchester University, probably the same time as Ron Brunskill did. He called it architecture without architects. Ron Brunskill himself described it as the product of local craftsmen meeting simple functional requirements according to traditional plans and procedures and with the use of local building materials and construction methods, which is a very clear definition of what it's all about. And yes, it is regional. It is local to the geology, to the locality of where those buildings are constructed. And the geology here is... The geology of Cumbria, as you know, is very, very complex. You've got a mass of three different ancient rocks. Um, you've got the band running northeast, southwest, which is the Skiddor Slates. And then you've got the Windermere group in the south. And in between, you've got the central Borrowdale Volcanics that we know of from the Craggy Peaks, which includes Helvellyn. But here, around the outskirts of Cumbria, we have limestone, and you have sandstone slightly further to the east, near Penrith. So we have a real mix of materials around here. In Ascombe itself, where we're going to go in a moment, the majority of the construction is of limestone, because that's a prevalent material. There are quarries nearby, and a lot of the settlements around here are built primarily of limestone. I mentioned the name Lowther in respect of the river itself, but the settlements, they actually have names that are relevant too. Yeah, we've got Ascombe, which means hamlet of the ash trees or the the settlement of the ash trees. And another one that's quite linked to the area is Helton. Helton's slightly to the south of the village and Helton is a farm on a hill or a farmstead on a hill. Now you're going to lead us up into the village of Ascombe now. I am indeed. I'd like to show you some of the um, delightful buildings and the variety of the buildings and the variety of materials. I'd like to start by introducing the village of Ascombe. That includes Ascombe Hall and St Peter's Church. A little bit about their history and then we'll walk up the main street. Excellent. Well, as we start to move up towards the village, to 
towards the church and the hall and so forth, it's probably wise at this particular point to examine just a little bit of the conservation and building development and how it has relevance to Cumbria itself. Vernacular buildings have been here thousands of years. We started off with timber frame, wattle and daub and thatch. And there would have been those types of building here hundreds of years ago, but they don't survive in this environment, so you don't see them very obviously. They are here, but they are hidden. But the conservation movement itself started as a result of recognising the value, not only of the grand stately home and the cathedral and the castle, but of the small yeoman's farmhouse, for example, Troutbeck, but also the smaller buildings. The buildings are there for a purpose and they have a character and a quality. And this was really recognised in the 19th century uh, by our own John Ruskin. John Ruskin wrote his seven lamps of architecture and one of them was the lamp of memory. And it's to remember that these buildings are here and should be cared for. And this transferred onto William Morris and the Society of the Protection of Ancient Buildings. And then the, the movement carried on with traditional craftsmanship being revitalised and the vernacular revival movement that occurred towards the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. So we had this re-evaluation of historic buildings and the traditional character buildings. And we really should talk about some of the actual designations that define these buildings. Indeed, and we are in a very, very valuable area for that. We're in the Lake District National Park. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It has been recognised for its character and quality. We're also next to Ascombe Estate, which you've got Ascombe Hall. On the other side, you've got Lowther Castle. Now, Lowther Castle is a registered park and garden, which gives it a status of being a very important garden and landscape that has to be protected. Ascombe has got a listed building, a hall, grade one. It's the same level of listing as Buckingham Palace or Westminster Abbey. So there's two designations, registered park and garden and a listed building. Now, a listed building is a building of special architectural or historic interest. And around the country, local authorities have a, a statutory duty to look after these buildings, ensure that their special architectural and historic interest is retained for future generations to enjoy. St Peter's Church, which is just across the bridge from the hall, that is a grade two star, which is again a very high level. Grade one's international importance, grade two star is of national importance, and the grade two is of regional and national importance, but not quite as high as a grade two star. The last thing that I wanted to point out really is a conservation area. And Ascombe has a conservation area. And these conservation areas are looking after the areas. So it's not just the buildings inside them, but the conservation area as a whole has to be preserved and enhanced where possible so that the character and the appearance of that area is retained. We have about 400,000 listed buildings in this country. Of those, only 2.5% are grade one, so not many at all. Grade two star, 6%. And the remainder, which is just over 90%, are grade two. But 400,000 buildings doesn't sound very many when you think about how many buildings there are in the country. And a lot of them are churches. So we are very lucky to have quite a concentration here in, in Ascombe Village of listed buildings. So precisely how many are there in Ascombe? Uh, there's about 55 plus the hall and the, the church. But actually in the Lake District National Park, if you look at that as an entity, you've got 1,750 listed buildings. Well, we've come into the churchyard, 
we've got a, a good perspective on the quite sturdy church. It's got a, a very distinct look about it. The setting is gorgeous. Snowdrops are out at this time of year. The light is dancing across the graveyard. Lots of trees. And of course, with the blue sky like uh, it is today, it's just wonderful. This is where the village starts, really. It does indeed. And a lot of the old maps of Ascombe indicate a church on this site from about the 1200s onwards. And records indicate that it was a different name. It was St Kentigern and St Columba. The Columba got lost over time. It became St Kentigern itself and an old Norman church stood on this site until the 1830s when um, the Earl of Lonsdale wanted to redesign the church and brought in an architect of international repute, uh, a chap called Robert Smirk, who's built quite a lot of structures around this part of Cumbria, but is also well known for doing the British Museum. So he built this church but he built it so it reflected the Norman ancestry of the building, the history of the building. It's got a very squat tower. It's got very chunky stone masonry. But it's also got semicircular curved head windows, which is typical of Norman churches. Inside it's fairly plain, but it has got a wonderful sense of space and tranquility. You talk about the setting and allow the castle and the allow the family, who are quite significant in this area... But this wasn't always allowed the community. No, 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 indeed not. It was owned by um, the Helbeck family until the 14th century, and then it passed by marriage to the de Sanfords, Edmund de Sanford. He lived at Hascombe Hall, and he wanted to construct what they call a peel tower within his hall building. The construction would have been a few storeys added to a wing of an H-plan traditional hall. They lifted it to make it into a peel tower to protect the family from the border reavers, from the Scots who were raiding down into Cumbria. So they built that as a defensive tower. And of course, across the river from the the church, they're the main positions uh, where they could see the Scots were advancing to the village itself. Now, after the de Sanfords, the Lowther family in the 17th century inherited it. And that's when we come to today. It's still part of the Lowther estate, although the current Earl of Lonsdale doesn't own it. It's the Dowager Countess that has control over the actual hall itself today. It's used today for weddings and a hotel, but it's also the home of Allium, which is a Michelin star restaurant. So it's still used today and you can still see it. Well, we've seen the church. You've given us the outline and uh, structural features of the Ascombe Hall with its wonderful southern facade and marvellous gardens. Now, what happens in the village? Can you describe that to us? The village doesn't look like it did when it was first built. Now, I've looked at some of the uh, historic maps for the area and the concentration of buildings was really around the hall until the 1600s. And we're going to have a look at some of these buildings because they will have evolved over time. Now, if you look up the hill, you can see that the hill has two building lines. On the left-hand side, there's a row of buildings all follow the general line at the front. From the punch bowl onwards. Yeah, from the punch bowl onwards. And then on the right-hand side, you'll see another one, very similar. So it's got two greens in between and a central island. And in the central island, you'll see a former school building and then a terrace, and it comes up to like a little crossroads. One road goes to Helton and the other one goes towards Yanworth. The greens would have been traditionally used for common land, for grazing of livestock, geese, sheep, 
cattle, whatever. Over time, the village changed its character. It's evolved in terms of its town planning, its village planning, from the toft way of farming, where you had farmsteads with uh, narrow plots going backwards where they had the garden. And then beyond that, they would have had the land that would have been farmed in like a strip farming type of way. By the 1600s, that had really stopped. And by the 1800s, if you look at some of the records, you see that the residents of the village, there's only a small proportion are actually yeoman farmers. The rest all have trades and they're all supporting the estate. Well, you've got the Earl of Lonsdale, the Lowthers, uh, who own the village. Can you explain about the planning of the village, which actually is a very unusual layout for a Cumbrian village? Indeed, many of the Cumbrian villages tend to follow the contours. They fit snugly into the landscape. And this one is a planned village. To understand the planning of Ascombe, you need to have a look at the villages around to compare it. I can compare you to Lowther Village. Lowther Village was completely planned from zero. Nothing on the ground. Ground was levelled. The Earl of Lonsdale, very wealthy man, got his money from trade and from the coal on the west coast. He had the world at his feet. So you had everybody clambering for work and he also had the money to pay for it so Robert Adam was asked to draw some drawings Robert Adam was the favorite of the day and he provided drawings for Lowther Village completely planned village this is slightly different in Ascombe because it's been planned after there's been buildings here already obviously Ascombe's on a gradient focused around the river around the church and around the hall eventually over time the houses would have progressed up the hill If you look at a completely different village, they've got Helton, less than a mile away. Still in the same estate, still the same parish as Ascombe. It's all built on the same contour line. It's been constructed on the spring line. Now, the spring line is where water is available from springs because there is a change in geology. The stone's different. You've got limestone and sandstone. Limestone um, allows percolation of water. Sandstone doesn't as easily. So it's a spring line. So you've got houses there that are close to springs. Well, let's get to some of the nitty-gritty. And I've got the feeling you're going to challenge me to be a, a vernacular heritage detective, like that sort of place detective sense. So uh, we'll, we'll wander up the street now. Now we've come up to the entrance to the hall, which uh, gives us an opportunity to look into the grounds. The snowdrops are absolutely abundant, uh, and there's some wonderful topiary and some grand old trees with rooks in. What I find really interesting is the tall wall that bounds the garden. Can you describe it to us there, Alexandra? These tall walls illustrate very nicely the materials that have been used in the village. You can see uh, a variety of red sandstone, the Permian red sandstone that's from nearby in um, Penrith. But also you can see limestone. But there's also different shapes of stone here. You can see that there are rounded stones that could have possibly come from the River Lau that have been used from the riverbed. But also there could be erratic, glacial features. So all these rocks would have been used for the foundations and for the walls of the village buildings themselves. When you look out from the gateway, what you have before you are three distinct bodies of building all joined together. There's the punch bowl, the pub on the right, In the middle is a slightly taller building, uh, whitewashed, with distinctive tall windows in the second storey and smaller windows on the ground floor. 
And then there's barn house on the left-hand side with a hipped roof. Now, there's a lot going on there, Alexandra. There is indeed. Now, what I wanted to explain, first of all, is Clark Cottage, which is the building on the, the left-hand side as we stood outside the gates of Ascombe Hall. Now, you're looking at two structures, two buildings. One possibly could have been an agricultural building or a barn building at one point, but they now seem to have been uh, knocked into one unit. So you can see it's all got a render finish, which is typical of residential buildings because they used limestone to build the walls and limestone wasn't the easiest building to keep windproof or waterproof so they covered it in a render a lime render to allow it to breathe and that's what you can see today it's got a render on the outside mm. now the roof if you look at the roof very carefully you can see that the slates they are bigger at the bottom Mm -hmm. and they graduate to smaller at the top. They're called diminishing courses. So they have longer ones that slightly overhang to try and protect the front door and the front elevation from the rain. You'll see that throughout the village. They're called diminishing courses, and it's very traditional here in Cumbria. And diminishing, does that make the stones lighter? It's lighter at the top, so the weight of the slate, which is heavy, the roof itself can carry the load, especially when it's got wind or snow. Now, the windows... Uh, I want to explain the windows to you. You can see they've got sliding sashes throughout. Yeah. However, on the right-hand side where the original house was, you've got vertical sliding sashes. So the windows slide up and down. Right. Um, and they've got four panes of glass. And they tend to be dated to the late Victorian time, early Edwardian time. Um, so they are not as old as the smaller paned sash windows you will see around the village on the left hand side you can see sliding sashes but they're horizontally sliding so they slide from side to side and these are called yorkshire sliding sashes because they're very typical of the yorkshire dales and they have very small panes of glass in the 16 1700s glass was very expensive and they could only buy small pieces so they tended to do small windows with a, a more bulky frame so you had small panes of glass within a frame and this is one of the older detective things you can see i want to point out the surrounds to the windows you can see that they are uh, very strongly defined with uh, a painted stone now the stone is painted gray but this stone would not be limestone and the building would be constructed in limestone. And the reason why it's not limestone is because it's not easy to work. And when I say work, you have to tool them using hand tools to make the shape and cut the stone to make length to surround a window. A masonry saw? Hand saw, hand chisel, whatever. I think we've got the date about 1650s um, for this one. So yes, it would have been hand. And limestone is not a material that you can do that with easily. So a lot of the details in the village will be sandstone to around the doors and around the windows. And we've got this continuous building extending along different styles. Why were they sort of built together as they are? It's likely that they would all follow the same contour. The building line would be all the same. But they also would share walls for economics of materials, but also for heat the heat of the buildings would stay together. That's so why it's all... today we have terrace housing. Absolutely. So now we'll move up towards the sawmill now. We've moved further up the green, which has got much broader, and we're surrounded by different levels on the right-hand side, elevated behind the sycamore trees, full of rooks, 
What a joy on a calm late afternoon. Lovely row of different scale of cottages. And on the left hand side, beside where we are now, above the punch bowl, we've come up to a different range of cottages, particularly sawmill cottage, which is stone built, sandstone, I would say, with a lovely slated roof, symmetrical front, metal rails in the foreground, irregularly roofed barn below it. So it's got a very distinct look. Can you describe its purpose? Um, I can indeed. I brought you to this building because it is distinctly different from the other cottages in the village. It's built of sandstone and you can see the sandstone um, blocks on the front elevation. Uh, and unusually it's set behind a wall which is a status thing as well. Now the reason why it's called Sawmill Cottage may well be be occupied by the uh, miller who ran the sawmill which was down on the River Lowther. I want to take you to the next building that is the um, smithy the former smithy associated with Sawmill Cottage and you can see that there's a different type of stone used there. You've got smaller blocks of stone, they call it random rubble, it's all different sizes of stone, all intermixed, there's no coursing to it. The cottage itself has got a coursing where the stones are laid in levels and built upon each other, whereas they just seem to be random together, so that means it's a building of lesser importance, not necessarily lesser quality but lesser importance. One of the important features on that building is the cornerstones, which emphasise the corner. They're called coins, Q-U-O-I-N-S, coins, French word for cornerstone. And they tend to be staggered and jutting out on each corner. Well, that's a typical classical feature that appears in the historic buildings as idea of grandeur to that building. Gives it a little bit more importance than the next building along, which would be, again, a functional building. So that would have been the smithy. You were going to mention about the wall thicknesses. Ah, right, that's very important, actually, because the earlier buildings tend to have the thicker walls and the deeper reveals. Now, by reveals, it's the depth between the edge of the wall and perhaps a window or a door. So the deeper that is, obviously indicates how thick the wall is, the older the building. What would cause them to get less thick over time? That would be the skill of the craftsmen to build the walls, the ease of working of the materials to construct those walls and potentially the new modern materials that are thinner and lighter and easier to work. Well, we'll move a little bit further up the street. Now we've moved further along up onto a grassy patch past a sequence of cottages and we've come upon a house which in a sense, is completely out of place. It's a really grand house. It could be a townhouse. Indeed, we're here at Croft House, and this is an 18th century building which has all the ideas of a polite architecture building. What is polite? Well, vernacular buildings are buildings that are constructed using local materials, local trades, local crafts etc we've already mentioned that but polite is where you start to use architectural features it's designed by an architect importing materials from outside there is a various grades of how vernacular a building can be or how polite a building can be and this is one of ron brunskill's theories about vernacular architecture we're here outside Croft House. You can see this building, Mark, has got very emphasised coins, the cornerstones. And it has been rendered. 
and it has got very heavy jam details the surrounds around the windows and the doors but the thing that is different is it's got very strong chimneys taller than usual and bigger than usual so they tend to be a status symbol and also it's got what you call a pro style door surround and that means freestanding a portico it's 19th century so it's been here over 100 years probably more so it is part of the village but it's obviously a more polite architecture part of the village maybe a manager uh, an estate manager of some form indeed right in the middle of the village as well well, we move a little bit further up this green towards the sun. We take just a little break just to look back over this gorgeous little village. It's quite charming in every way. And I'd rather like to turn the spotlight back onto you, Alexandra, because the love of vernacular architecture is something that I share with you. For me, it's about drawing. For you, where does it come from? I can't really say when it first started, but um, as a child I was dragged around buildings, every type of building you could possibly think of by my parents. We holidayed in the Rustland Valley, always looked at the older buildings, valued those older buildings. And it wasn't really until I was a teenager when I got interested in archaeology and geology, to be fair, and I got very interested in why buildings were built of those sort of materials and where they were located. And within Cumbria, your particular loves, particular village, particular buildings? My favourites change, and they vary. But at the moment, my favourite village in, well, I should say Ascombe, but actually it's Milburn in the Eden Valley because that has got its own special character. In terms of favourite buildings, again, that varies as well. I like Bruff by Sands Church. Fantastic. St Michael's, a wonderful door. I love the door inside, but also the fact that it was a peel tower. I love the clay dabbing buildings built uh, using clay with thatch roof in Cumbria, still surviving. Um, I like Sarah Losh's church at Rhea, a favourite church. Um, she's a lady architect from the 19th century who designed a fabulous church. I like Levens Hall, not only for the building, for the topiary. My passion and my interest goes beyond the buildings into the landscape and the geology itself. We've been talking about heritage in many forms during the course of this conversation. Why does heritage matter? Very important question because it does. We think about place, our sense of place, with buildings as landmarks. We associate memories with places and buildings. But also, I'm a heritage officer. I look after historic buildings. My clients are not the people who pay my salary. My clients are basically the buildings. I champion the buildings because people who buy historic buildings have them as custodians for their ownership. But what I'd like to see is these buildings retain their character and their main significant features so that future generations can appreciate, understand and learn from them. And without champions for these buildings, they won't survive. Now, you work in Cheshire. How do you feel we're doing here in the Lake District? I don't know how they work here in the Lake District National Park. Um, it is an unusual situation that they have local authorities have their own teams, but also Lake District National Park has their own team. And what slightly concerns me, and I don't understand why, is areas that could be conservation areas are not. 
And I don't know whether that's because they've assessed them in a different way or whether they haven't got the resources to continue and do reviews of these conservation areas. Um, the example of Coniston is one, which I was quite surprised hasn't got a conservation area. That evolved from the quarrying because the biggest settlement was Hawkshead, I believe, originally. Indeed. I mean, that is a very pretty village, but Coniston's a pretty village. And the building character there, I personally think warrants a conservation area. However, I'm not the conservation officer. I don't know the local politics. But if there's ever a job going at the Lake District National Park, just let me know. <laughs> we'll let you know. We've come further up the green and uh, typical of an agricultural village for all its uh, minimal agriculture now, I would say. Uh, there's still the sound of a tractor in the background. But of course, what is lovely are the rooks in the trees. And as I look over my shoulder east, I can now see the turrets of Lowther Castle, which is a bit of a gaunt structure by comparison with all these lovely, warm, enchanting cottages around us. Now, I'm looking down the bank to an interesting little terrace or row, and there's one rather unusual darkly green painted surrounded doorway. What's that one? Well, Alexandra. This, this building I wanted to highlight to you because it is a butcher's. It's the house where a butcher lived. It's got a render on the outside. It's got its window and door surrounds painted a very unusual colour of green. But it's also got a date stone. A date stone is supposed to date the building from when it was built. But you need to always take that with a pinch of salt because they sometimes put the wrong date on. But they also sometimes uh, reuse date stones. So they're not actually an accurate age-defining uh, element of a building. These date stones would normally be above a door. Sometimes you can have them quite high up underneath the roof line, uh -huh. but mainly above a door. And you usually have letters as well. Um, well, there's two stories about this because I've heard differing um, information. Professor Brunskill told us that the date stones tend to be the initials of the builder. Right. However, in Cumbria, I've also heard that letters either side of the date stone tend to be the name of the husband and wife, and in the centre, the initial for the surname. Jory's out on that because I've, I've seen date stones with both of those on now. But this one in particular is the name of the butcher that used to live here. Now, the thing about historic villages themselves, the architecture tells you a little bit about the buildings and the wealth of the owners and occupiers of those buildings and a little bit about what their background was. But it's really the records that tell you a little bit more about a village. The village here, uh, we've got the green would have been used, like I said, for common land for grazing of animals when it was used for tofts, which is basically a farm, farmsteading. But also it would become a social area for gatherings for the villagers and one of these uh, events that we've had records of who these people were that were socialising in Ascombe Village and this document is called Parsons and White's Directory and Gazetteer of Westmoreland and it said that this village had a grocer, a gardener, a shoemaker, a painter, a tailor, a wheelwright, a cooper, a dish tuner, where a dish tuner is, a weaver and it had seven farmers. So 
the farming community wasn't as big in the 1800s as it would have been in the 1600s and 1700s, but it also had a butcher. And the thing that I wanted to draw your attention to about this building, looking back at that date stone, which says 1674, um, I want just to point out the feature in the middle of the date stone. And you'll see a funny pattern and it looks like flowers or something. But if you look closely, it's actually the face of a pig, huh. which indicates it was owned by a butcher so it's a very early form of advertisement it's a cartoon and i think it was actually i think they actually did it as a jest we've come up to the crossroad as it were where the main road that runs from yanwath and tyrrell direction heads up the valley up the low of the valley towards bampton here we've got the queen's head we've got the village stores and a lovely tree with a bench underneath it, which is always rather attractive, and barns. So that's the town head end of the village, all cohesively part of the village. And uh, as we draw more to the close of this conversation, uh, it's nice just to turn back and see this lovely stone-built bus shelter and a telephone box, which actually still has a telephone in it, which is marvellous. It brings us right round in a circle. You've got, within a few miles of here, the earliest settlement 4,000 years ago, all the way back to the 20th century. You've got a K6 Sir Giles Gilbert Scott telephone box, which is also a listed building. Well, as the light fades uh, to the west... And we did say it was an east to west village and uh, over to my right behind us, the sun is dipping over the horizon. Uh, and before that occurs, <laughs> I'm going to ask you a few quick fire questions. What was your first Lakeland memory, Alexandra? My first Lakeland memory was seeing an adder by Ruslan Paul when I was about eight and being frightened to death. Favourite fell? Have you got one? I'm not sure you call it a fell. I like Arnside Knot. It's not a fell, is it? It's a great little It's hill. a, a Marilyn. It's, it's a... my favourite Marilyn. <laughs> I like them all. I like Black Coom. I like all of them. But I think with Arnside Knot, it's because we have a family connection. My family and I go there all the time. We walk the knot regularly. It's something that the children can do. I have two teenage kids. The views over Morecambe Bay and over to the fells in the Lake District are phenomenal. And it's just there. That's it. If you stand back from the fells, they look all the grander, don't they? Herdwick or Red Squirrel? Herdwick, by far. I love Herdwicks. I've got my little mascots, a Herdwick. <laughs> I love Herdwick. I'm very sad. My You're husband a... thinks I'm mad. <laughs> Have you got a favourite view? The view of Silver Howe from Dove Cottage Garden. I think that's a beautiful view right across. But I also like looking at Old Manor Coniston from Brantwood as well, which I, I do visit regularly as well. Have you got a particularly favourite walk you'd like to share with listeners? Onside Knot, walking up the side of Onside Knot and then coming back around Far Onside Bay and Onside Bay to White Creek, looking at the uh, fossils. Brilliant. Fabulous. Which is your favourite season of the year in Lakeland? Oh, that's a tough one. I love the snow on the fells. I love the daffodils uh, in the spring. I've done sheep dipping. I've done lambing on farms in the Cumbria. They're all fabulous. They all have different charms. 
Is there a moment in the history of Cumbria that you'd like to be able to return to? In Going back? Going back. I'd love to meet John Ruskin and sit in his Brantwood looking over the Lake Coniston in his rocking chair and just talk to him about his geology collection, <laughs> about his drawings, about his philosophy. Have you a favourite food distinctive of the cuisine of Cumbria and Lake District? I like Westmoreland pepper bread. I love it. It's, it's like a fruit cake, but it's got pepper in it. It's made near Grange over Sands, and they sell it at Dove Cottage and Wordsworth Grassmere. It's very nice, and it's Cumbrian. Well, that sounds very good. Uh, could you describe your perfect Lakeland day? My perfect Cumbrian day would depend entirely on the season and who I'm with. I love the idea of uh, going to the Cumbrian coast and wandering around um, Whitehaven, looking at the Georgian planning of the town itself, all the fantastic buildings. You've got the wonderful harbour, all the public artworks have gone in. You've also got uh, the parks and the gardens around it. You've got the Beacon Museum, you've got the Headland. That would be a great day out for me. Uh, but I also like to go on the lakeside train at Haverthwaite, go all the way up to Lakeside, get the boat all the way up to Brockhole, wander around the Thomas Mawson Gardens, and then have a meal there at the restaurant, and then get the boat back. You've covered it there. I'm coming with you. <laughs> <laughs> if you were Prime Minister for the day, is there one thing you do to sustain and uh, look after the landscapes and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District? The first thing I would do is get a minister in place that knows what heritage is all about, which is the main crux of everything, to understand the parameters within which heritage works, and that includes the built landscape, the natural landscape, all to do with heritage and the understanding of that the people need to understand and learn about what it is that's surrounding them. Most people can walk down the street and not see anything. People don't look up either. They don't look up and see what's above their eye level. And I think to do heritage justice, you need to have people in jobs looking after the buildings and the areas, but you also need to have the resources to pay for it. Journey's end, getting bitterly cold. I think we're expecting the coldest night of the year so far tonight. So um, I'm looking forward to getting in my car. I think you guys are going to the pub. Uh, and I'm either as good as far as I'm concerned. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating to have that wander with Alexandra. Loved hearing her passion for why this matters. We, we need to care about this stuff. We need to protect it. She emphasised at the end there on the quickfires about what heritage represents. And in this setting where you've got ancient monuments on the hill, castle over the way, a great hall, diversity of cottages here, most of them, if not all of them, very well looked after. It's heritage writ large. For a village I've always loved, it was great to get that extra dimensions knowledge today. Um, and I think I will look at houses in a subtly different way from now on. We're bringing this podcast to a close, Mark. Usual housekeeping. If you would like to support us, you can do so in one of three ways. You can recommend us to your family and friends. 
You can buy one of our guidebooks, our small suite of guidebooks, which seem to have a new entry, the Ambleside Walking Companion, coming soon. Uh, or you can, for as little as £2 a month, support us on Patreon. And we would like to say thank you this fortnight to Thomas Grayson-Smith, Carol Kitts, Janet Webber, John Fleetwood, Matt and Tasia Malone, Anna Greaves, James Smith and Jane Martin, all of who are supporting this podcast and keeping us out in the... Out in the cold. Out in the cold, <laughs> oh, exactly, yeah. does feel a bit like that. Oh, yeah, I've got gloves on, listeners. <laughs> yes, you do and I don't. We're on social media, Mark. Oh, yes, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Country Stride One. Do feel free to follow us there. This is episode number... Uh, this is episode 98. We're getting there very steadily. We're getting there. I think number 99, we may be going up onto the fells, possibly. Oh, yes, we are. That's right. I'm looking forward to that. On the fell. One of the least loved, I think, of the Lakeland Fells. But there's a lot going on up there, and it's, um, it's important work there, preserving the wetlands. But that's it from us for today. Signing off from lovely Askham. Uh, on this very chilly night. We'll see you next time. Oh, looking forward to the snow tonight as well. (laughs) 